0: Good morning. Let me pray. Father, we pray that you would um, speak to us through your word this morning. Might your spirit be at work. Uh, Might might we make Jesus large, magnificent and great this morning through this text, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What is your number? Would it be 10,000? Maybe it'd be 1,000 maybe 1 million. If someone offered you a sum of money to never come to church again, to never go to small group again, to never read your Bible, to never sing another worship song, to abandon your faith, is there a number that someone could offer you this morning which you would accept? Would it be 10 million? What's the number? I hope it's not under 100, I'd be very disappointed. Maybe you're exploring Faith this morning and you've come along as a visitor and you'd say, okay, hundred, I've got no idea what's going on here today so I'd take a hundred dollars. But hopefully by the end of today you will see the number should be indeed very high and I hope for those that place our faith in Jesus, there is no number at all that would place upon that. So what is your number this morning? For some, when it comes to worshipping together, the chance to make big the name of Jesus, to recognise him for who he is and what he's done, and give him due credit, they're hard to hold back. Um, I've heard people talk about worshippers in South America, Christians, and they'll travel by bus for hours to get to church, and if you don't preach for a long enough time, they get, they get very mad, because they've committed a lot of effort to get there, to hear the Word preached, to sing together, um, and if you go too short, you get... It's almost like a reverse encore, you get called out to preach longer. And I'm not going to do that to you this morning, because that's not our culture. What they'll also do, is they'll bring their chairs on the bus, because when they meet, they don't have anywhere to sit. So you actually get on the bus and you take your chair with you, and you commit hours of travel time and walking time with your chair. You'll probably look a little bit silly walking down the road, don't you, carrying your chair along. People are driving or travelling, and they say, they look a little bit like an idiot carrying your chair. But you're off to church, you don't care. You're willing to commit the time, effort, you're not worried about looking silly. And so this morning we come to a passage in Matthew that talks about responses to Jesus and the costs one is willing to pay to worship Jesus or the price one is hoping to extract as you cash in on Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is some sermons are very slick and polished and what you end up with is a sausage. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to make a sausage together. Um, They say you should never see a sausage being made, but this morning, we're going to make a sausage as we compare all four accounts of this. This passage appears in all four Gospels, and we're going to look across and survey and see what we can learn from this, and then we're going to see some modern examples at the end, um, some characters, both real life, non-fictional characters, and I hope the details are not too distracting from the point, because there's some sort of details in one of them and I'll try and keep it as properly rated as possible so none of our ears burn. Um, but it's going to be a fascinating look this morning at this idea of what is your price, what is the cost. Let me read the start of Matthew 26 again for you and we'll draw a few things out. What we've just been in is a section of Jesus talking and teaching about judgment and all sorts of things in chapter 25. And so verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, He said to His disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. What is Passover? I'm glad you asked the question. Passover is one of the most key Jewish festivals, a time of celebration, commemoration, a time which lasts a whole week. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from the exodus of the people of God, from Egypt. You'll find it in uh, Exodus chapter 12. Make a note if you're not flipping with me but I'm going to read you a section of Exodus 12 so you know what's going on here, what this means to them. Exodus 12 comes right after the 10th plague, well the, the warning that the last and final plague upon Egypt is coming in chapter 11 because there has been no response from the Pharaoh in the call of God's messenger Moses to release his people, to let them go. And it says at the end of chapter 11 and verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Chapter 12, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. you are got to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. What it goes on to describe is this ceremony that's going to celebrate their release from slavery in Egypt and it goes on to say that you're going to have a lamb barbecue, it says in verse 9, don't eat the meat raw or boiled in water but roast it over a fire and it says don't leave any of it until morning in verse 10 and it says in 14, this is a day you are to commemorate for the generation to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance, for seven days you are to eat bread without yeast on the first day, remove the yeast, and on it goes with the stipulations. And if you flip to the end of the chapter, verse 24, actually 22, you are also to take the blood from the lamb, in verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of your door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And it goes on to say, this is an ordinance for future generations so they know that the Lord has released you from Egypt, the Lord has passed you by from judgment. And this is the setting in which we find the climactic part of Matthew approaching rapidly. Matthew 26 speaks of this Passover festival coming It's two days and Jesus says, and you know, it's taken some time for this message to get through to the disciples, they haven't believed at certain points that Jesus will die, but he says, you know, after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And this reminds us, if you've read the book of John, he says in chapter 1, what does he say about Jesus at the very start of Jesus' ministry? People are asking John, this crazy guy, yelling in the people repent, turn to God and they're saying, are you the Messiah? And John says, no. And indeed, it says in verse 29 in John, it says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, we've got in Exodus, this festival instituted that celebrates release from slavery as God's people are set free and it's a lamb whose blood is splashed above the doorposts and on the side, and John says at the start of Jesus' ministry, behold, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is a link being made here, and then Jesus himself says, it's Passover, the time has come, I'll be delivered up to be crucified. As a little further background, in John we notice that Jesus has now moved to Bethany. You're going to notice that perhaps in the text. But it's definitely, yes it is, it's in verse 6 of Matthew. But it's very clear in John, they've been in Bethany for some time because Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, The story is told where he's called to come and Lazarus dies. Jesus arrives what appears to be too late and uh, Lazarus in John chapter 11 is raised by Jesus when he says, come out. Don't stay dead. Come forth, and three others came out, and then he came out forth. I think is how it went, something like that. Um, and so this is the, the background here, and you will see a a climactic. There's a there's a real speeding up of the narrative here to what Jesus is is going to happen at Passover. And what we see in the background in verse three of twenty six is we see the chief priests and the elders are gathering and plotting, they want to know how to bring Jesus down, how to kill him but you'll notice if you were to check out Luke 22 which is the passage that is parallel here and it has the least detail of all of them, what you'll notice is, and it's it's here in 26 as well, what you notice is the chief priests don't want to cause a fuss and in Luke it tells us they are afraid of the people. Why are they afraid of the people? The people are actually getting really excited about who Jesus is because they have seen Lazarus raised. And for this reason, we know people are starting to see Jesus as the Messiah, the one who can change all things, the one who can restore us back to relationship with God, the one who can even reverse the effects of sin even unto death. He can reverse the power of death. And people are saying to each other, come and see Jesus. Did you hear about Lazarus? This offends those religious leaders, those scribes and they want to put him to death and they gather by stealth at the high priest's house and my translation says they gather in the palace of the high priest, probably the better word to use there is the courtyard because the high priest's home would not have been princely and kingly. So, they're gathering in the courtyard for secret plotting meetings as Passover approaches. So, that's the scene in which we find ourselves Passover is approaching, Jesus has moved to Bethany, He's the place which is about two miles from Jerusalem. He's already raised Lazarus and it's caused a great stir and opposition is rising and it won't be long, Jesus says, until I'm delivered up to be crucified, that horrible means of Roman execution. So here we find ourselves and then we arrive at a key part of the story that we just heard Briony read out when Jesus was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman comes up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. So, Matthew launches straight into the story here and says, Jesus is at Bethany. What we find out in um, Mark's account is this house is, um, he also refers to it as the house of Simon the leper. That's a little bit different from John's account. Uh, John actually says, Uh, Let me just go back one little bit here, it's on the other page. So the chief, sorry I've got the wrong one there, we're making sausage, we've got some mints on the floor but we're not worried. So what we see though is that the house is Simon the Lepers but the people hosting the party is actually Martha and Mary which is an important fact to take note of. Um, So when we combine all the stories together we see it's at the house of Simon the Leper. This is interesting. They're not sure if Simon is healed at this point or if Jesus is just breaking all social convention and holding a dinner party at a leper's house. But here we see ourselves, there's a party, there's a dinner party going on, hosted by Martha, Mary's in attendance and a woman approaches and John actually tells us this is Mary who is approached. John 12 says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Matthew recounts that she actually pours it on his head as he reclines at the table and I think these things fit together quite well. Remember our theme in Matthew is Jesus is King. So for Matthew it's important that the head be anointed like a king. But there's further detail, the whole body is anointed essentially, down to the feet and Jesus points out this is in preparation for my burial. Now this is not a cheap bottle of cologne from Coles that Mary has brought forward, this is a very expensive, um, from the ointment of pure nard, that is a Indian or Nepalese aromatic plant and it had to be imported, you'd need a great wad and bunch of this to extract, extract out a small amount of ointment of this aroma, aromatic um, oil. And the amount they have here is about 325 grams, so it's, it's only a small amount. And it's very expensive. It's probably worth around a year's wages for a labourer. So I think in today's terms, I'm just going to take a guess, not being a labourer, but maybe fifty-five dollars or $60,000 worth of ointment here in one small bottle. That's more than uh, you know, Calvin Klein or whatever bottle you're using at the moment. I can smell someone's good stuff down there, no? Um, So, here we see, this is an extravagant mode of worship at the moment. Mary has come forward and she's demonstrating how important she thinks Jesus is. She's willing to break this bottle open because there's no plunger or screw top in this time. You have to break the long neck of the bottle to use it. And so, often it was just a valuable around the house you would never use because it would cost too much. Once you break open your $50,000 bottle of ointment, it's open and it's releasing and it's going off, you know, it's becoming less potent as it evaporates. But here, Mary says, Jesus is worth spending this money on and for a woman, spending that much money even lowers your chance of marriage You become less marriageable because a woman is not the primary money earner in the household. So for a woman to come forward and say, I'm willing to spend 50 grand on you, Jesus, for this one moment to pour out the ointment on your feet and your head and to wipe it with my hair and anoint you, this is a significant moment of worship. And we see the response from the disciples. And I think we might find ourselves saying similar things. Let's read what the disciples say. In verse 8, they say, indignantly, when they see it, why this waste? Why this waste? One moment. That's a bit I've added in. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So here we find Mary's moment of worship is ridiculed, is put down. It's minimised seem to be wasteful. You could have done something better with that money than spend it on this moment of worship. I think we can do that too with other people. We can judge what they're doing for Jesus and say they could be doing that better. They could spend their time better. They could spend their money better. They could spend their health better. What a waste. So at this time, It's seemed to be ridiculous worship, extravagant worship, wasteful worship. And Jesus says, leave her alone. He says, why do you trouble the woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Interesting. And he goes on to say, in pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me. For burial. Gospels aren't written at this point, and Jesus makes a prophecy and it comes true, so you may as well note that here. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are this morning, remembering her. Jesus was right. But what we see is this moment of extravagant worship, this indignant reply by people saying, How dare you? Think of all the poor people. We could have spent that money on the poor. We're always good at spending other people's money, aren't we? They should have, you know, they won the lottery. They used it all wrong. I would have given it to the poor, at least a portion of it and remained filthy rich with the rest of it. But people are using their money wrong. People are worshipping wrong. How dare they be extravagant? People are hungry, don't you know? But Jesus says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Now, some people might take this the other way around based on what Jesus says, and they might respond, well, this means we don't need to worry about the poor. This means we can just come to church and flap our arms in a most extravagant fashion and throw some money in the, the offering plate, get those 50s going or whatever you've got, fives in my case, and uh, make it rain for Jesus. And that's not the case at all. Jesus is saying, this is a special moment right before my death. Do you know Jesus, as he's wont to do, is actually quoting... Old Testament Scripture here. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15 and let me turn there and read you a section so you get a picture of the heart of God for the poor and the hungry. This is what He commanded, I'm back in Exodus, that's not good, we've we've made it out of Egypt. Okay, Deuteronomy 15 and it's from 7 to 11. This is what God tells His people, the Israelites, how to respond in charity. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard hearted or tight fisted toward them. Rather, be open handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. Hmm, the seventh year, the year for cancelling debts, is near, so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites, poor and needy in your land." Jesus loosely quotes verse 11 there, there will always be poor people in the land. So Jesus is not saying throw out all of Deuteronomy and how to deal with the poor here, Jesus is saying this is a special moment of worship, this is a special moment when Mary has recognised me and has decided to worship extravagantly, don't judge her for it. So I think we need to bear that in mind rather than perhaps saying worship in a sense of extravagance and pomp and ceremony, however it is, if it's genuine worship, that trumps the way in which we deal with the poor. That is to wrongly divide the spiritual and the physical, isn't it? You know, there's an essence of spiritual worship, we worship God in spirit and in truth but that would never detract from the way God has called us to love our neighbour as ourselves. And that's what we see reflected in Deuteronomy 15, the way in which we are called to treat the poor. Fascinating. So we see the rumbling, grumbling disciples. And we see in, um, here that it's put down to the disciples who are rumbling and grumbling. But we also notice that um, in another parallel account here, in uh, John, it's actually, um, funnily enough, it's actually Judas treasurer of the disciples who is the ringleader of these comments he seems to be leading the charge in saying gee we could have used this money for better purposes don't you think and um, for some of you who already know the end of the story we know how that ends so here this is the setting we're in we're racing towards Passover we're at a house in Bethany the house of Simon the leper Martha and Mary are thick as thieves just pure joy about Jesus having seen their brother Lazarus raised from the dead, which is causing such a stir that the high priests and the elders want Jesus put to death. They even want Lazarus put to death. Lazarus is not worried. He's like, here we go, second time again, I'm ready for it, you know. I'll probably be three days and be back again. Jesus has got this. So there's there's real swirling emotions in this scene here. And it's just fascinating to see the different responses. We've already mentioned... Judas, Judas is the ringleader of these pointed comments at Mary, wasteful Mary, useless Mary, extravagant Mary. But what we see at the end of the dinner party, doesn't quite tell us when, the passage in 14, Matthew 26, 14, just says, then one of the 12, so following on from that, one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me? If I deliver him over to you, and they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here we see the sellout moment. Here we see the response from Judas. Not only will I not extravagantly pay respect to Jesus and lift him up as worthy of spending my hard-earned spike-nard on my fifty grand of ointment, I'm going to cash in on Jesus. There's a commentator called Stag, which I think if you're going to be a commentator, it's a good name to have. He thinks Mary and Judas are two people in the room that best understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is about to die, and we see the responses I should anoint him, he's worthy. Versus, oh no, he's about to die, I better cash in here and make some money off Jesus. These are the two responses it's the response of, What can I give? Versus what can I get? Fascinating. One worships, one cashes in. At the moment, we've got that sausage casing half filled, I feel like. We've got a bit of mince around. I've got a bit of sausage casing around my neck. But we're seeing what's going on here. So if Mary and Judas are the most aware of what's going on here. What is the cause of their different responses? That's worth thinking about, isn't it? Why are they responding this way? The answer is different views of who Jesus is. The answer is different views on what Jesus means for your life. What Mary is focusing on is... The best leader ever. Let's be real for a minute, best leader ever. Do you know Peter Parker was told great power brings great responsibility, wasn't he? Jesus has all power. Jesus speaks the universe into existence, you don't get more powerful than that and yet Jesus handles his power with responsibility. Jesus uses his power for others. Jesus creates a world of others, that's us, and invites us into relationship with him. Jesus lowers himself to walk with us, to restore the rebels. Mary sees powerful, loving, transforming Jesus. And she's right. Judas sees another side to Jesus, which I think holds element of truth. Judas sees confronting Jesus. Jesus doesn't come to affirm us in the way we're living. He says you need transformation, you need to be changed, you need to be restored. You need, as John said, repent. That's the U-turn of the heart. Behold, the Lamb of God is here. Repent. Make straight your paths, is what John said. So Judas is seeing confronting Jesus. Judas is seeing annoying Jesus. He wants my time. He wants me to change how I respond to people and how I respond to God and what I do with my ointment and my money. Jesus is time-consuming. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And they're both right. But Judas says, well now's the time to cash in. Jesus is confronting, he's annoying, he's time consuming. I think I can cash in here and make some money. So off he goes, slips out the back or maybe it's the next day after dinner party and he's down at Caiaphas' house, the high priest house, meets in the courtyard with him and says, I've got something for you guys but it's going to cost you. What can you offer me if I deliver up Jesus? And they said, 30 pieces of silver. That's about 120 days worth of pay. So you've got one hand, someone willing to worship with a year's laborer's wage, fifty dollars to $60,000, versus someone willing to to earn and cash in on Jesus four months' worth of work, maybe, 120 days. That's the difference what we're seeing here in response, isn't it? And why? Because of their view of Jesus is different. Do you see Jesus this morning as important as this powerful leader who's come to rescue you, just like Israel from Egypt, this Passover lamb who can set you free from something called sin, that rebellion away from God, from which we can do nothing to free ourselves? Is that the Jesus you see? Or do you see Jesus as a nice guy who taught some good things, or maybe a bit annoying because of those Jesus people that you know nearby and they're always talking about Jesus. kind of frustrating. How do you see Jesus this morning? How are you responding to Jesus this morning? I'm going to ask you again at the end, but first I want to tell you two different, more contemporary responses. I've got the more dodgy one first, so hopefully at the end of that you can move on we can talk about um, the Christian response. But there is, in the 1970s, there was um, two people that were married, Jim and Tammy Backer, and they became famous tele-evangelists. Already you know where this is going. going this is not ending well, Televangelists, 1970s America. And they started TV broadcasting. And Jim, quite the entrepreneur, thought, I don't want to run ads, I'm just going to buy time off the TV stations and I'm going to run my own programming. And then in the middle of it all, I'm going to call for people to donate to the cause. And he called the cause, you could join the PTL club. It's the Praise the Lord Club or People That Love Club, the PTL club. And he would call you to give in the middle of his talks. And so I'm going to do that today as well. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. But this is, this is his strategy. So he starts broadcasting on other people's networks. Realised this is going so well, started his own cable system, starts broadcasting, asking people listening in to give to the PTL Club. Now, he's ambitious, but not in the traditional way when you read about following Jesus. He thinks if there's a normal Disneyland, there should be a Christian Disneyland. I mean, that's who wouldn't have thought that, right? And so, things are going so well because people are giving to the PTL Club and they're receiving mink furs and diamonds and cash and they're like, wow, this is going well. God must be blessing us, we're loaded. So, the next step in the strategy is they buy a large, very large land allotment and they build Heritage USA, a 500-room hotel with a water park, as you do. That's what City Rich Marion wants to do soon. Sarcasm, by the way. You can be part of this offer. $1,000 gets your lifetime partnership in Heritage USA and the PTL movement. And as part of that, it gets you three nights stay in the hotel. Things went a bit too well. He sold sixty-six thousand memberships. Paul, if I times a thousand by a thousand, do I get a million? I do, don't I? That's sixty-six million dollars from people giving on this one cause, as a televangelist. Well. The sort of tale continues, and I'm not going to give you all the details, but eventually the federal investigators become very interested in Jim and Tammy Backer, and he's found to be dealing fraudulently in the way he handles his money. It's no surprise they have multiple Rolls Royces and multiple great homes. So Jim is actually sentenced to 45 years in prison, ends up only serving five. Um, his wife has all sorts of mental health issues. Jim was released. Do you know what Jim's Jim's response was after this situation, after he thought, gee, you know what, I've made a lot of money off Christians. I've sold a version of Jesus and made a lot of money, $66 million. Once he's released, do you know what he does? He now raises money selling end-of-the-world products. So, the Christian entrepreneur lives on. If you're worried about the end times, you can buy large packs of freeze-dried food from Jim and Tammy Backer. So, here we see a response to Jesus. It's a message I can twist and distort and tell you, you're going to live your best life ever. All you've got to do is give me $1,000. And hey, you might even get three nights in a hotel in 2029 if the occupancy rate lowers enough because I've sold so many memberships. We see someone selling Jesus out monetary gain, for personal gain. So there's one side, there's a contemporary version of Judas. Let me read you about someone else who has a Christian response. This book has uh, seven men, seven women and the secret of their greatness and a lot of them are Christians. It's a, a book about how faith and life interact and what happens to people when they become convinced of who Jesus is. One of these people is William Wilberforce. You might have heard the name. It's from the 18th century. Uh, Very different culture in this setting um, in England. And Wilberforce growing up is sort of a a guy who's not sure what to make of Jesus. And as a young man, he's sent to his auntie and uncle's place. His parents ship him off and think, we'll sort him out. Um, We'll send him off to auntie and uncle's. What they don't realise is um, the auntie and the uncle are Methodists and at this time, Methodists, they're a little bit crazy, they're the crazy Christians who take it a bit too seriously and so who's there spending this time with them, learning about Jesus and what it means to be a Christian, how it demands your time and your effort because you love Jesus and through that you love your neighbour and his parents actually call him back before he gets too Christian Back then, it was okay to be culturally Christian. You were sort of dignified and respectful, but we don't take it too far. We don't actually give stuff to the poor and mingle with the lower classes. And so this is an influential moment in Wilberforce's early life. And he wrestles through what to do later. What does it mean to commit my life to Jesus? Should I become someone in full-time vocational ministry as a minister of the gospel? No, a friend convinces him. Stay where you are and use your legal training, be a lawyer, be an advocate for the gospel, for the gospel cause through your work, through your secular work. And that's where we find Wilberforce, in this setting, he has two things he wants to get done, two great commands. He wants two great objects, he calls them. One of them is the abolition of slavery, the other is the reformation of manners. Reformation of manners sounds funny but at the time it means to change culture, the culture at the time was pretty crazy stuff. There was a great class divide. Let me read you a section here and you'll see what Wilberforce is facing as we then pose the question to ourselves, what will we do with Jesus? Then there was the wider problem of alcoholism, which contributed to almost all the other problems. It was an epidemic of proportion we can hardly imagine today. Everyone seemed to be addicted to alcohol, and there seemed to be nothing to help it. Members of the upper classes were perpetually drunk on claret, claret. Claret. I'm not a wine drinker, showing myself there. In fact, members of parliament were often drunk during legislative sessions, and the lower classes were drunk on gin. The sexual trafficking of women was another staggering problem, one whose scope is almost inconceivable. Fully 25% of all single women in London were prostitutes, and their average age was 16 How's that for culture? For the entertainment of the perpetually drunken crowds, public displays of extreme animal cruelty, such as bull baiting and bear baiting, was very popular. When these grim spectacles were unavailable, public hangings, which were sometimes followed by ghastly public dissections, fit the bill. People were put to death for the smallest offences and the conditions of the prisons were unspeakable. Wherever Wilberforce looked, he saw a world untouched by the good news of Jesus Christ. People used and abused others in a perpetual downward spiral of misery and decay but Wilberforce knew that God had called him to do something about it and since God had called him, he knew that he couldn't do it in his own strength. He would need God's help and he would need the help of others. Perhaps the most obvious sign This is key here. Perhaps the most obvious sign of Wilberforce's conversion to the Christian faith was that it changed the way he looked at everything. Suddenly, he saw what he was blind to before, that God was the God of justice and righteousness, who would judge us for the way we treated others, that every single human being was made in God's image and therefore worthy of profound respect and kindness that God was no respecter of persons and looked upon the rich and the poor equally. Once Wilberforce had come to see that God was real and that God loved everyone, everything was different. Suddenly, the idea of the slave trade and slavery itself seemed less an economic necessity than merely monstrous and wicked. Suddenly, the idea that the poor little children should be forced to work in awful conditions for long hours was disturbing and unacceptable. Suddenly, the idea that those who had committed minor crimes should be thrown into filthy prisons where they might die of any number of ailments for lack of treatment was something that must be remedied. Suddenly, the idea that women should sell their bodies so that they could feed themselves or feed their alcohol habit could no longer stand. For the first time in his life, Wilberforce saw the world through God's eyes. But he was living in a culture where almost no one saw things this way. So the task that lay ahead of him was impossible. How would he do it? Cliffhanger, buy the book. It's really good. So here we see two different responses in contemporary settings. You can be the tele-evangelist cashing in on the name of Jesus or the Wilberforce tackling culture, knowing it's an impossible task because you see the world differently. So the question for us this morning as we close is now that you've heard a little bit about Jesus, a little bit more about Jesus as a refresher or maybe as an introduction, first time here or online this morning. Jesus is the rescuer who wants to transform hearts and minds to worship God so that we respect each other as God created citizens of planet earth and love each other. So the question for this morning is, are you living in a way that shows this passion for King Jesus? Are you willing to demonstrate it to the point it might look embarrassing, that it might look extravagant? Or, are we in this Christian lifestyle for the free coffee, the great friendships? Maybe you're here this morning because you're in a routine that just feels right. Maybe you like to play in the band or speak in front of a hundred people. Maybe you enjoy shared lunches. There are a myriad of reasons why we might follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. The only remedy for that is that we see Jesus in the correct light. This morning, do you see Jesus as powerful, the great leader, as loving, who sacrificed himself by Becoming God as a man, what we celebrate at Christmas. The one who is transforming the things that Mary saw. That is the challenge for this morning. And then are you ready to show in whatever way God calls you, whether it be transforming culture in your area through the power of the gospel, whether it be extravagant worship in ways that people might say is ridiculous. These things come out of recognising Jesus for who he is. The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'm going to call the band up as I pray this morning. Father God, we thank you for this look at Jesus right as he's heading to be crucified on the cross, the, the lamb who can take away our sins when we turn and face you and allow you to transform us through faith in Jesus. We pray this morning this would affect all areas of